Greetings, folks. My name is Michael Rosso. I'm here at the Film Photography Podcast for a spectacular show. We, we, when I say we, Leslie Lazenby. Hello, everyone. Mark O'Brien. Hey there, everybody. Leslie, myself, and Mark had the great pleasure to hop in my buggy here in New Jersey and drive down to Freehold, New Jersey to interview Mr. Sam Sherman. Leslie and Mark were not as familiar with Sam. No. I am, of course. And, if, and Sam, I said to Leslie, Sam has a very low profile on the Internet regarding his interest and love for film, traditional film photography. If you look up Samuel M. Sherman, you will find a lot of information about uh, his job in the past as a producer, a movie maker. You'll, you'll find articles about uh, all of the films he produced with partner Al Adamson back in the day, but very little about his film photography. And Sam is a great film enthusiast. Sam has been enthusiast. such a supporter of, yes, of film. So Devil now <laughs> in the digital age, it's even more fantastic that Sam is just as enthusiastic now as he's ever been. So in this first episode, uh, we talked to Sam about his roots as a child, how he got into film photography. Uh, so we're going to devote this entire show to talking to Sam about how he got into it. So let's get into it. I have the privilege today of sitting with a very special guest, Sam Sherman. And this is Sam here. Thank you for inviting me. Sam, the first thing I'm thinking about, my first camera, that type of thing. So initially, we're going to go right back to the beginning, and I am thinking two questions. What was your first camera, and did you want one and ask for it, or did mom and dad or Aunt Linda say, you know, I think that kid could use a camera for Christmas. So how did the still photography... And, and and maybe even first might even be before this, chicken or the egg, still photography, or was it a movie camera first? Exposure, and I don't mean film exposure. Uh, my father was interested in photography, but not seriously so. He had a Kodak Brownie box camera, and he borrowed cameras from people. I remember him borrowing a black Leica, I guess Model 2, and uh, he had floodlights. Remember, I was a little kid. I was a baby. And he took a lot of photographs with the Leica. And uh, he had enlargements made. And it was very impressive. And eventually, um, my father got, this is during World War II, some little plastic cameras that he gave me uh, that I didn't take pictures with. But I just played with them as toys. They were very inexpensive. Uh, I'd almost call them almost sub-miniature box-type cameras. And from that, uh, my first camera I got to take pictures with was a Donald Duck camera. Now, Donald Duck was a Disney uh, name brand. So I got that camera, and it used 127 film. Mm -hmm. And I still have it. I still have it. But the problem with the Donald Duck camera was uh, light leaks. It had terrible light leaks. So I guess that would be around where the the back is joined to the body when you snap it closed. And uh, I was never pleased with that Donald Duck camera. I did buy another one to have in my collection, but I have my original 
Donald Duck camera. And then uh, on my 10th birthday, uh, my parents gave me a Kodak Brownie Hawkeye. And uh, that was the plastic, kind of an Art Deco camera. And there's seemingly millions of them that were made. And they're all over the place. But I had it for a while. And I still have one like it. And uh, it was a very good camera. I see a lot of them advertised online. People are still using them. And they... uh, they're pretty good. I still use mine. You still use yours. I, I actually, of course, as you said, there are millions. I even spray painted one of mine gold just for my holiday edition. <laughs> well, <laughs> but hello, buddy. There's Buddy the Terrier. <laughs> Hi, Buddy the Terrier. Let me just mention here that the Brownie Hawkeye is really a, a favorite cult camera with a lot of people because it. A, it uses, you can still get film for it. You can still roll 120 on the 620 spools and, and use it. But the other thing is a lot of people take them, they um, reverse the lens. And so you get this beautiful out-of-focus background, and it's good for looking at things close up. It gives you a, a little bit different perspective. And there's one of our listeners also, he actually has a lens hoodie he puts on his Brownie Hawkeye keep x to keep the flare down and all that so they're still a, as a artistic vehicle they're still being used the one thing about the one that i had unfortunately was it was the early model you'd say is there an early model aren't they all the same uh there is an early model yes the early model is without flash sync and uh, at the time uh photo flash indoors was getting to be a big thing well after world war ii Two things became big. Lenses with coating to increase the contrast of lenses on still cameras and movie cameras. And flash synchronization internally in cameras. Cameras had flash synchronization back to the teens with uh, flash powder. They would... uh, And a big flash would go off. And then by the 1930s, there were uh, mechanical synchronizers that could be attached to cameras, and they would use these large Wabash screw-in bulbs. That's right, yes. And press photographers used them, and other people used them. And then there were uh, cameras that developed internal flash contacts, and the first one of note was the Exacta 127 camera, or VP Exacta, about 1933-34, that had internal sync contacts so you could attach a flash unit and these big wabash flash bulbs and when you press the release on the camera at the same time as the shutter opened the flash was synchronized but continuing from the 30s into the late 40s and early 50s many cameras did not have internal flash contacts it seems crazy but they didn't so a whole cottage industry of mechanical synchronizers was made by companies like King Sol, Sol for the Sun, uh, Kalart, which went on to make projectors and editing equipment, and others made these mechanical synchronizers. So I seemingly was upset at the age of 10 telling my father, but it's a nice camera, but it can't take flash pictures. Well, I'll get you a flash unit. And uh, what he did was, did get it eventually i gave that whole thing to my sister in san francisco i guess she still has it 
And what this was for the Brownie Hawkeye was an aluminum kind of a bracket that fit around the camera. So you took your Brownie Hawkeye and you put this aluminum thing around the camera. And then there was a release button that pressed into the release button on the camera. However, how would you know how to synchronize that? Well, the release button on this aluminum bracket had an adjustable screw. A little higher came later, a little lower came earlier, whatever. And so you turn that. I don't know how you synchronized it. There may have been a, uh, a kind of a bulb from a flashlight on this uh, flash unit where you could look through the lens, and if you saw that thing, it lined up. So I had that and used that for a number of years, but it was a very clumsy thing. You had your brownie hawkeye and this circular aluminum thing around it, and then the tubular aluminum flash unit, uh, which was more like the uh, Graflex units mm-hmm. that became popular as Star Wars laser sabers. <laughs> it's just so crazy. Anyway, that's what happened with that. And uh, I used that for a number of years, and I felt I wanted to get out of that. I didn't want to be involved with that whole crazy unit, and I wanted to have a camera that had adjustable uh, lens opening, shutter speed, focusing, because that was more professional, and I learned about that in the pages of Popular Photography magazine, which I subscribed to from an early age, and it was just a wonderful resource of things you could learn, and I I don't know how I picked up on photography, but I liked motion pictures, and I also was given uh, an antique Univex 8mm, single 8mm movie camera, so I was involved with that, it's still pictures, but the one thing I was never happy with was the quality of any of these things. The cheap Univex camera was awful for many reasons. And the uh, Brownie Hawkeye was very, to me, very simplistic. Not what I wanted. I saw people in the pages of popular photography with Leica and contacts and Rolleiflex. I'm saying, those are cameras. That's what you want to have. But then I saw the prices. 150 250 300 dollars so in those years that was like triple quadruple the money today and it it just was not possible so i somehow wanted something else and i ended up with a another defective camera i've always been fighting defective cameras and this was made by the same univex company that made the cheap movie cameras it was what's known as a subminiature a pocket little tiny camera kind of a rectangular, called the Universal Minute 16. And uh, that had its own defect built in, which you could only use Universal film. Not everybody had that film. And like the Donald Duck camera, we're now back to light leaks again. So again, this thing had the light leaks, reminded me of the Donald Duck camera. And it had, it was a nicely made brushed aluminum camera came in a kit with a little case you could put in your pocket, and it had a synchronized flash unit for smaller number five bulbs. Mm -hmm. But I was not happy with it, and I used to patronize a camera store in the Bronx called Camera Craft, and it was just kind of a dream home for anybody interested in cameras. They had all kinds of cameras on the shelf, and 
The people were so nice to me, the salesmen. And I would say, could I examine that? Could I look at that? And uh, they would take all kinds of cameras off the shelf, put a pad on their glass counter, and let me examine a Leica camera. Here, I'm a little kid, and a Leica camera. And I was very excited about whatever it was. And one day I came in there, and I saw a little camera on the shelf, not small, but a little larger than the Argus Model A and its continued versions, a simple 35-millimeter camera, which looked like a Leica. It had that configuration, and this was another camera like it. And it was with its box and with its case. It looked brand new. It was on the shelf there, and it was called Vitar, V-I-T-A-R. And um, I, I looked. I said, could I see that? They took it off the shelf. They showed it to me, and it had all these features, focusing, lens stops, uh, shutter speeds, everything you'd want. I could see that at the top it had a flash shoe, which was an unusual thing in those years. It became popular later on, but it was a slide-in place you could put a flash unit and had a center electrical contact called a flash shoe. And that was originally devised in the 1930s for a camera called Perfex. But eventually other companies devised it. And I guess in the later years, uh, there were just most cameras had a flash shoe. So I looked at this camera. It was very nice. I said, you know, I've heard this other one's 150 and this one's 250 How much is this? $15. Well, still a lot of money to an 11-year-old kid, $15. And I said, uh, you know, I'm going to think about that. And then I thought, and I said, could I trade you something for that? I didn't know that the camera stores traded, but he said, well, bring in what you've got. And I brought in my whole kit of Minute 16, which was just mint in the box, looked beautiful. He said, yes, we'll trade it. It was the same company, Universal, which had been Univex, straight up for the other camera. We'll give you that camera, $15 straight up. So they traded and gave me the Vitar. Well, the Vitar, it turns out to be a very low production camera which among collectors is a very big thing today. The last one I saw being sold was selling for $350. It's just not a common camera, and it was very much like an Argus A, A2, AF, kind of a plastic, plastic camera. Universal was a company that was always going bankrupt. They made different small cameras, and they were best known for forcing you to use their film. So if you had the 8mm movie camera, it was single 8 Univex film. If you had still cameras, it was Universal OO film. You were forced to use their film, which was, you know, a nice stunt for them, but the public couldn't always get it. They couldn't find it, let's put it that way. So what happened next was uh, I got this camera, and it was from the much maligned Universal company, Whenever I went into a camera store and asked them anything about Universal, they always put it down, oh, Univex, it's awful, it's this, it's that. And so I could see the camera craft, maybe they got this Vitar camera on a trade, and they felt nothing about Universal. They didn't like them, and of the much maligned Universal, were glad to get rid of it, only I traded them another Universal product. <laughs> so uh, I started using this Vitar camera, and I found out it was really very good. It took 35-millimeter film. 
and it was now semi-professional, and it could take a flash unit, but try to find a universal flash unit. It's one of these uncommon things that you'll never find. But in a local camera store, other than CameraCraft, I found there was a slide-in flash unit made for a camera called FedFlash. And FedFlash took 127 film, which was a smaller version of 120, a larger version than 35 millimeter. And uh, they had that flash unit, and I could see it. It fit into a flash shoe. So I said, uh, I wonder if I'll fit my camera. Well, he said, I don't know. It's in a box of closeout stuff. It's a dollar. Just take it. So I paid a dollar, and I got that flash unit, and I took it back, and I found it would fit on the camera, but you had to bend the contact to get it to work on that camera, but it worked just fine. And I was very big on flash photography. As much as I like to take pictures anywhere, I liked indoor photographs. I liked taking people unawares called candid photography. It was an idea going back to the 20s, candid photography. You know, somebody would be bending over in an odd position, snap, or they'd be straightening something out, snap, or they would be posing and they made a goofy face, snap. So I, um, when I went to junior high school, we had printing class where you printed something and they said, we're going to print our own business cards, <laughs> business cards. So I made a business card for myself and it said, Samuel M. Sherman, photographer, candid's a specialty. Love it. <laughs> I don't know what I was taking, but that was what I liked. And uh, I went everywhere and everybody saw me, especially with this Vitar camera. Sam's always got a camera with him, or they called me Samuel at those years. Samuel always has a camera with him. He's taking pictures of everything. And I did. And my mother, who was a uh, great intellectual uh, and cultured lady, took my sister and myself to the Hunter College Young People's Concerts on Saturday morning. And there was a man by the name of Thomas Sherman who conducted a full orchestra, but not spelt as our Sherman, we S-H-E-R-M-A-N, he had a C, a C-H-E-R-M-A-N. She said, I don't think he, he is a relative. But we were there, and I would go on one basic agreement that I could bring a camera with me and take pictures. Well, you'd say, a camera and take pictures? My mother was humoring me. She knew everywhere I went I took pictures. So we got to this, this concert, and they were having a dancer on stage as the orchestra played, a full orchestra, maybe 30, 40 pieces or more. There was a dancer by the name of Danny Daniels who was on stage dancing. I said, this looks pretty good. So I get up out of my seat. I go right to the front of the auditorium, and Danny Daniels is dancing, and he's flying through the air. Click, flash. He's All of a sudden, he's a little off kilter there. What's that? And then he can da 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 turns da 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 Flash. So I, I shot, you know, a whole bunch of pictures of him. And now nobody stopped me because I guess in later years, having a big, bright flash camera in some kind of a concert, they take you out by the scruff of your neck. But uh, nobody bothered me. I went back and sat in my seat. Well, the concert continued and we're, we're leaving. 
And a man comes over, an adult comes over to me, and he said, uh, I'm the agent for Danny Daniels, and I see you're, you took some pictures of him today. I wonder if we could see those pictures when you have them developed and possibly purchase some of those pictures because Dance Magazine is doing an article on him and we have no photos of him. Tell well, 11-year-old kid. Tell me what you whipped out of your pocket. What did I take out of my pocket? Your business card you printed in no, school. No, I didn't have it. it. <laughs> I didn't have it. No, I didn't have it. Anyway, the point is my father was a pharmacist in Manhattan, and I gave him my father's number at the store, and he called there. And my father, when he came home, uh, a few days later, had the films processed. He would always, because pharmacies had a contact to labs, he always had everything processed. And whatever it was, black and white, enlargements, whatever, and he did it. And the best part of having my father do it, it didn't cost me anything. He paid for it. So whatever he did, he got it, brought it home. And he said, oh, these are pretty nice, this fellow dancing. I said, well, this is the man. Remember I told you about it? want to buy the picture? And so on and so forth. And uh, he said, well, he hasn't called me yet. Maybe he will. So he took all the photos with him. And um, eventually this man came down uh, to the store and offered to buy two of the negatives, not just the prints, two of the negatives. And um, he said, um, it's a strange amount. I don't know how people figure amounts out to value something. But this is 1951 when I was 11. And uh, he offered $17.50 for two negatives, $35. And my father came home and said, uh, what do you think? It's mine to do with as I please. I said, well... Uh, I can use that for buying a better camera. Uh, I think we should we should do it. And so he came back to see my father, and he bought two negatives for $35. Now, that's the first professional anything. I shouldn't say professional anything. I, I was on the radio when I was a kid, but that's another story. But this is the first professional anything I sold in media, uh, photo, movie, whatever have you. And um, my father said, well, I have the money for you. I guess maybe paid him in cash, gave me the $35. He said, now, what are you going to do with that? Like, that would be a purpose for it. I said, well, Dad, here's the problem. Yeah, I like my Vitar camera, but there are things I can't do with it. If I want to take a very close-up picture of something, you can't focus or frame it that close and uh, they have a new type of camera called a single-lens reflex, which meant you could view through the taking lens, focus it sharply, and see precisely in the finder what you're taking. And you could take all kinds of odd things that way, and it's a great improvement. Uh, but that kind of reflex is very rare, and it's mainly a camera called Exacta, made in Germany, and those are expensive cameras. We said, well, you, know, you could keep saving up for that, but what else could you get? He said, well, I said, I'm seeing ads in the paper for Peerless Camera, which was a big camera store in Manhattan, and they have kind of an imitation exacta single-lens reflex called Practiflex, and it was another German camera. I didn't know at the time it was East German or that exacta was East German 
or what that even meant, why it, it should even affect me. Who cares? I want the camera. So they had Practiflex there, and Practiflex sold for about $49, which was better than Exacta for $200. And my father said, well, if you want that Practiflex, why don't we go down and look at it, and you have $35? And he said, I'll give you the rest of it, and we can buy Practiflex. So we went down to Peerless Camera Store, and they had a ton of them all on the shelves there of Practiflex. But nobody was buying them, of course. Nobody interested but me. So I uh, looked at it and blah, blah, blah. And, of course, I took one home. We took it home. And there was something wrong with it. This was the problem with the shutter. It didn't whine. So we brought it back and uh, got one that worked. And there was apparently in East German camera production, something I didn't understand as a kid, a little thing called quality ranking, quality rating. Among the communist East German factories, they would have a stamp on the camera if it was first quality, and that was a one and a Q. It took me many years to find out what that meant. One and a Q, first quality. But the rest of them were just thrown together and where were they sold? They were sold to the captive peoples of the Eastern Bloc communist nations, Russia and Poland and East Germany itself. And you know what happens. They, they buy something that didn't work, and uh, they'd come back to the commissar or wherever it was there. Uh, camera not work? You broke it. You take it home. You go to peace. We, we not take anything back, you know. So from the nice society like that, or a lot of these defective cameras that were knocked out and they were forced into the marketplace, mainly in these Eastern Bloc. And in the United States, these communist Eastern German cameras were not supposed to be sold legally. And so they were traded for wheat through, cam through ca Canadian sources, traded for wheat and brought in through Canada. And Peerless somehow ended up with them and a few other dealers, but uh, the uh, West German cameras, Leica and Contacts and uh, Roloflex and things like that, were the better cameras. But these were cheaper, and stores like Peerless, they were the main, uh, what should I say, marketer of this kind of stuff. So I have this Practiflex. Now I'm planning to do things with it. I took pictures with it, color slides, and I got a slide projector, and this, that, and the other thing, and it was very nice quality, but I realized one small problem, no flash synchronization, and that was a problem. There was still leftover cameras from the 40s made all over the world, no flash synchronization. So I took this to Willoughby's, which was a higher class was so camera store. It's um, here. I wanted to ask you, did you ever get to go to Willoughby's? Oh, many times, oh, many Willoughby's. times. Anyway, I took Dream. it to Willoughby's, and they had an elevator that went up to a repair place called Archinal. And I brought my camera there, and they said, yes, they could add internal flash synchronization for $15. And this was, I got the Practiflex in 1952. Maybe this was 53. Maybe I had a few dollars for my allowance. And they went ahead and they actually drilled in there, and they put some uh, copper contacts in. And because it was a focal plane shutter, meaning the shutter was at the plane of the film, and those were rubberized fabric shutters, it had to take 
what was known as an FP bulb. An FP bulb was focal plane bulb for focal plane shutters. Now, FP bulbs were different than the standard number five flash bulbs, Mm -hmm. and they were more expensive because they had what was known as a long curve, which meant the light from it lasted for the shutter to open and close. And it was a long peak is what they called it. And so you had to get those FP bulbs. So I had now the FP bulbs, and I had the flash-synchronized camera, but no flash unit. What am I going to do? So I ended up taking my aluminum unit from the Brownie Hawkeye and sacrificing it for this and getting a connecting cord that would connect from that aluminum thing onto this and I started taking pictures with it. Well, alas and alack, Archinal camera that synchronized this camera, they they de uh, they desynchronized the rest of it because now it was slightly out of focus and now it had some other oh uh, light leak had another little light leak. It took me years because I still have those cameras years to figure out the focusing. So when they took the thing apart to put the flash in, they moved the viewfinder viewing screen out of alignment so i fixed that but i could never be sure that i absolutely got rid of that light leak i don't know where it was i went through it and put black tape in and cover things and so so it was interesting moving into these different areas of still photography i could depend on that vitar camera that first one i traded at the camera store and uh interesting enough although it was a much maligned camera from the Universal Company, it was a far superior camera to the similar low-budget 35-millimeter cameras of Argus A and all that, because in being interested in photography, I've collected all these things. I've kept my old cameras and collected other ones. And the um, Argus A is not as good a camera as the Universal Vitar. And a lot of the other low-budget 35mm cameras were not as good. And I still have it. I don't use it, but it could be used. It's still a good camera. And so it gave me an in to still photography. But uh, the next jump up was stopping in DeVigas. And DeVigas was a chain of sports stores in Manhattan that sold, uh, you know, sporting goods and equipment and sneakers and all that. And somehow DeVigas was the closeout company for the Universal Camera Company. They still were in existence in Manhattan. I occasionally went there to get parts or things. They were, on, they were at the Flatiron Building at 23rd Street and uh, 5th Avenue. And you could go up to the Universal Camera Company and they'd sell you a part for your movie camera, whatever you wanted. But uh, the next step was, what else am I going to have? And I used to frequent the DeVega sports stores, and they had a camera department. And they advertised in the New York Times and other papers, close out, 50% off Universal cameras. So all the Universal stuff was closed out by DeVega's. And I went in there, and I wanted their twin lens reflex, called the Uniflex. I got to be friendly with the salesman there because I went in there with some friends of mine, and we always bought things from him. Whatever it was, old stuff he had there, or new stuff, or 
and he liked us, and his name was Duke, and he ended up being at another camera store uh, called Abe Cohen downtown near Wall Street. He was just a nice guy. I got to know him for like 20 years. He had uh, a one of their Uniflex twin-lens reflexes made by, again, the same universal camera company. Right, he says, oh, why don't you get take this Uniflex? You can have it for $5. Seemed like the right price, and I got that. And uh, took it home and played around with it and fixed it. I got to experimenting. I could do certain repairs and fixing things. My father was a technician who could fix anything. He was one of the pioneers in radio in the 1915 era, and he could do anything. And he showed me a lot of things, how to repair things. And Plus, I went to school, learned how to do things. So I fixed this Uniflex, and I used it quite successfully. Uh, it was a, I still have it, twin lens reflex, Roloflex style, knob wine, no, no crank, and uh, a slow f5.6 lens, but reasonably sharp. And the other thing nice about it was it had the same universal flash shoe as the Vitar, so I could use my existing flash unit on that camera. And that was your first introduction to 120 or 620 format? Well, not really, because I not. started with the... Uh, uh, the 127. One, I, no, but, I started with the uh, uh, Hawkeye, Briny Hawkeye. Oh, that's right. 620. That's right, okay. And I like that format, 6x6 mm-hmm. uh, uh, right. six six centimeter, one, two and a quarter square. I just mm-hmm. liked it. It was a nice format. Okay. And so came back to it here. And the interesting thing about the uh, Uniflex camera is it was one of a few, when I say few, I mean a handful in the world of cameras that took either 120 or 620. You use either one. So I I went to buy film as cheaply as I could, and they'd always have a closeout or outdated something or other little bin on a counter, and it didn't matter to me if it was 620 or 120, because I could use both in this Uniflex. Well, through the years, I've discovered there were a few other cameras that could take uh, either 120 or 620. They are, number one, the FOTAK, P-H-O-T-A-K, which is a folding camera, uh, and it's an interesting camera. Not that it's a high-quality camera. It's sort of like a folding bellows camera, but a box camera-style cheap lens. That has capability for 120 or 620, and people buy those cameras just to use them to re-spool one onto the other. Years ago, when I was very into uh, starting with 120 for other cameras too, I would buy whatever the film was cheaper, 620 or 120, and re-spool it in a dark closet. So I could take 620 and re-spool it as 120, shoot it as 120. Today, when 620 cameras still exist and the film is less common, people are spooling backwards 120 onto 620. So there are a few cameras that could take that. And there's a very, very good camera, Strange, that takes 120 or 620. It's the Coniflex, K-O-N-I-F-L-E-X, made by Konica which is now a uh, $300 camera when you can get it. And I've had a few of them through the years, and I have 
now gotten another one, and they've always had defects. You know, it's just some of these things, oh, that's some defects. So I have it working again, and I looked at it carefully, and it does take 120 or 620. And there's some other folding cameras that do. And the, the trick to it is that the probe for the full spool is stepped. It has a center that's small that fits 620, and then an outer rim that's wider that fits 120. And then on the part that uses the take-up, it has a slotted area that's also stepped small that fits the 620, larger that fits the 120. In those days, when I started with the Kodak Brownie Hawkeye, I was well aware of the differences between 620 and 120 and the fact that they even existed. Most people today wouldn't know that, and I would doubt that that many people would know that, but I do know it, and I can explain what those differences are. Yes, they're the same film, but there's a slight difference in that the spool is smaller and thinner on the 620. Hence, the attachment of film onto the paper backing is different on 120 and 620. 620 is slightly different because it has to accommodate the thinner spool. There is a slight difference. The other thing is 120 was kind of a generic size film. And the interesting thing is it goes back to like 1905. So somebody interested in playing with old cameras to see what they would do would be very interested to buy some old folding camera from 1905 and shoot 120 film and see what that would look like. I've always been curious to do that. I haven't done it, but see, what would that look like? But Kodak, after a while, when 120 from 1905 on up became more popular, they were trying to do what Universal later did, prioritize their own types of film so that you had to have Kodak film to use in Kodak cameras. So they went ahead and converted 120 to 620, the thinner spool and a slightly different winding. Now, the 120 continued on non-Kodak brands, and 120 continued on European cameras. So 120 film, going into the 40s or the 50s, was mainly a size for non-Kodak cameras and for European cameras. Although the film was similar in the size, 120 film was considered more professional. Even though box cameras did use it, it was used for Rolleiflex and other better 120 cameras like uh, Super Ico whatever from Zeiss and things like that. I often thought that Kodak may have also done the 620 spool to save money because it used less metal in, in production for, of the spools, whereas at the 120 spools took... Originally, they had a, a wood core, and then they changed to a metal core. And that extra little machining and, and stamping probably added to the cost of the film. I think you're right. I think, you know, when you figure out the cost of materials, you know, with a million spools, they're saving .0000. But I, I definitely think uh, while that was a, uh, what would I call it, a side benefit to Kodak, I think they were really uh, trying to prioritize and personalize their their own uh, cameras and spools. They were a very strange company 
in many ways. On the other hand, you have to give George Eastman credit for inventing flexible film. It made motion pictures possible. It made all these still cameras possible because prior to that, everything was a glass plate. So it was a very valuable contribution that he did. But they did strange things. But the strangest story I can tell you about Kodak didn't involve Kodak. It involved a man by the name of Morris Kleinerman. And I say strange story, I mean weird. And uh, somebody interested in strange stories and horror movies and mystery novels and things like that, which is me, mystery comic books, I'm always interested in something strange. Well, Morris Kleinerman was a very strange person. And yet he's important in film history. He was one of the early film pirates. And he would go ahead and get someone else's movie and he would copy it. He'd make a 35 millimeter copy negative from that that movie and he would then sell this overseas to foreign countries and mainly independent pictures because the major studios would get after him on copyright violation. But through the 20s and the 30s, that's what he was doing, pirating other people's movies. On the other hand, he did some interesting things. Although I personally didn't like the man, uh, I did get a chance to meet him. He had a little store on 55th Street between uh, 7th and 8th Avenue. And he had a woman there who was his uh, counterwoman. And because they sold things cheaply, I used to go in there with my friends to buy 8mm camera movie film or, you know, still film, whatever it is. It was always very inexpensive. But I didn't know why. Well, the answer was very interesting. Kleinerman was an interesting character. In the 1930s, he bought the rights to a bunch of silent Mud and Jeff cartoons. They were black and white silent. And he had these cartoons colorized. It's the first person to, that I know of to colorize a black and white film uh, where they would take each frame of the negative and make a print, and then they would put it on an animation stand, and uh, it had registration pins, and he'd have people color it with an overlay of uh, you know inks and things like that, and then they would re-photograph this onto Cinecolor, which was a two-color process, and he then hired people who did a music score for this. So I have some of those 16-millimeter uh, versions of silent black-and-white Mutt and Jeff cartoons that were colorized. Now, Mutt and Jeff was a big, important syndicated comic strip. Believe it or not, he played some of these first run at the Radio City Music Hall along on the program with major films. This is the king of movie piracy, and there he is working in the legitimate film industry. Well, he continued to do strange things like that. And after World War II, he was able to buy surplus film of all kinds from the U.S. government. They had made a lot of film for use in World War II, filming different things from airplanes and stuff like that. 
So he would take the black and white uh, material that was 16 millimeter perforated for 16 millimeter cameras, and they would re-perforate it, re-punch it. So every frame that had a punch mark or a uh, punch in a 16 millimeter film, between it he'd have another punch mark put, and that would make it suitable to be 8 millimeter. And they would re-spool that film onto little rolls. So I bought some of that film because it was very cheap, and they processed it too very inexpensively. But it was never steady when you ran it. The answer was there was a difference between the 16 millimeter perforation, your camera would hit one of those, and the one that he had added. It worked, but of a sort. So it was jittery, kind of. Jittery, that's right. So now what else did he do? He ended up getting aerial film. The aerial film was made for the government, five-inch wide, still negative film, and it would come on big rolls for these huge aerial cameras that they would shoot out the windows of planes when they were photographing Germany to come in on an aerial raid and bomb them. And they'd have these big negatives, those called aerial cameras. And so he bought all the surplus aerial film, and he would have in a dark room uh, slicers that would cut them down to 120 or 620 width and uh, make backing paper that they would wind on. But the most important thing that he did, he did something that nobody did in New York or maybe anywhere, was he employed blind people to spool the film. And these blind people worked in the dark rooms spooling this cut-down aerial film onto uh, a 120 width, which was less than half the width, and I don't know what they did with the extra little piece. Maybe they made that into movie film. They 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 used everything. You know, it was uh, there was an old saying that on this farm, we we take the pigs that we slaughter and we make bacon and we make this and we make that, and from the this we make the hide and it becomes that and becomes pigskin. And they said we. We take everything and use everything from the pig, including the grunt. It was an old old gag, but Kleinerman was the man that used that whole pig, and he used that grunt, and he employed all these blind people, and the government must have paid him some portion of the salary for the blind people, plus they looked away at all his piracy. I, I had heard that... Uh, in his early days, that he was producing and selling hardcore porno films. And anybody connected at that time with that, they went to prison. That seemed like all his associates went to prison, but not him, because he was there employing these blind people, spooling all this surplus film. So now, what did he do? He was able to find my friend Joe Bonomo, who had been a silent movie star and who was a big marketer to Woolworth's Five and Dime chain and to sell his film. And what did he do? He re-spooled this cut-down film for box cameras, 620, 120, 127, put it in yellow boxes and stamped it 
with a red stamp, genuine Kodak film, red. <laughs> and this would sell in uh, Woolworths all over the country. And it also would sometimes be used in kits. If there were a kit of cameras that were unknown brand, who knows where they came from, the generic film that went there, it said plus two rolls of Kodak film, was uh, Kleinemann's respooled film. So Kodak sued him, and they sued him. They sued Joe Bonomo, and I remember when that happened. And uh, they lost in court because the only thing that they had, not the red Kodak, which they claimed was their trademark, was some individual design of the word Kodak in the red on the yellow box. But Kleinman got away with it, selling this respooled aerial film as genuine Kodak film because when his attorney, defense attorney, uh, defended him in court, the uh, court ruled, yes, isn't this genuine Kodak film? Yes, it's respooled, and he's employing blind people, which is a good thing. And uh, so he was doing that, and he succeeded in doing that. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Unbelievable. He got away with it. I guess I'm the a retainer of odd stories of media, motion pictures, television, things like this with still photography. These are all true stories that you're not going to find many places. I got into uh, doing my own darkroom work, and uh, my father bought me an enlarger, and I ended up... Uh, doing a lot of work, and I, I like doing it. I did a lot of it. As a matter of fact, uh, when I lived in Parkchester, which was a, a big apartment complex in the Bronx, and I went to uh, Stuyvesant High School in New York, I was taking photography courses, uh, not only photography courses, but belonging to the photography club. Everything was photography. And... Um, I was in this uh, photography course, and uh, we had a very dictatorial teacher. He was very difficult. And we had to finish our photo projects for the term by the last day or fail. Well, a lot of people were late, as I was, and they couldn't get their 8x10s done. We did some in school. They sent some out. And so everybody knew that I could do lab work. And they were giving me this work to do, and I got paid for it. That was, that was nice. But I took over the one bathroom in our apartment. Uh, nobody could go to the bathroom. Samuel, come out of there. We got to go to the bathroom. I can't. I'll turn on the light. I'll expose the thing, blah, blah, blah. What happened was eventually people did get their opportunity at the bathroom. But I uh, came in late at that uh, last day of school, and... Uh, the course ended at 1 o'clock. Maybe I came in 5 to 1, and half the class was threatened to fail because they didn't have their term projects done. And I opened the door like a minute or two to 1. Oh, Sherman's here, Sherman's here. And I gave out everybody their, their photos, and later I gave them their bills, and they all paid. And they all gave in their, their work term projects, to the teacher, and they all passed the course. But when I came in, I will say this. 
I was the hero of that school. (laughs) And they applauded. Here he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every every brow was was up. (laughs) I was up all night printing. Uh All night printing. Whatever they they had, 120, 620, 35 millimeter, made these 8x10s of everything. It's just amazing. So how did I get involved with photography? Uh, I just... uh, you know, got involved with it. I liked it. I saw it as a tool. When I got into the motion picture industry, uh, we needed stills and advertising materials. And we had a wonderful still photographer lady in Los Angeles that my partner Al Adamson had met by the name of Hetty Dietz. Hetty Dietz was just a great photographer. She used Roloflex cameras almost exclusively, and her work stills. She shot every scene as a replication of stills. And she made 8x10s for us, made, of course, uh, contact sheets that we picked from. And she did also great portraits. And when I came out, I worked on a lot of pictures on the coast. I brought my cameras with me. And I didn't want to make Hetty feel bad because I liked her so much. And her husband was our sound man, Bob Dietz. I said, Hetty, I'm going to be taking pictures on this show, but I don't want you to think I'm competing with your job. I don't want you to think I'm in any way taking anything away from you. Do everything you're doing. I'm just shooting special ad photography for press books and ads and promotion that I'm doing. I want to thank everyone for listening. That was Sam Sherman in part one of the Sam Sherman tapes where he, Leslie, myself, and Mark chit-chatted about how Sam got involved with film photography. I want you to join us for part two very soon. Of course, podcast at filmphotographyproject.com. Do send us an email. You know, give us some feedback. You have a question for Sam? I'll pass it along. We're going to see you next time. It's a great year for pictures. And Scofilm makes the picture right. And Scofilm any day or night. It's a great year for pictures. So why don't you go and get A-N-S-C-O. And Scofilm. And Sco. This weekend, make your pictures great with Ansco.